0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Jonathan Gagne, who is a coffee blogger at uh, Coffee at Astra, which is a really cutting-edge coffee blog about coffee and science, and he's also a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the Institute for Research on Exoplanets at the University of Montreal. I wanted to talk to him about some coffee stuff today, and so uh, here he is. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> it's my pleasure. So uh, usually the guests are, I'd say maybe like. 20% coffee people, uh, but I always start off with the question of uh, what have you been drinking lately or like what it, what are your coffee habits like? And so you're going to have a much more interesting response to this, I think, than most people. Um, can you tell me what your day-to-day coffee brewing and coffee drinking looks like?
1: Yeah, so most of the time when I wake up, I brew a, yeah, I used to do V60, but now I'm, I've started to use like a flat-button dripper, but I do a manual pour-over. And I usually drink two or three cups throughout the day, uh, all pour overs. Uh, What I actually drink varies a lot. So I have a lot of different roasters. I tend to vac seal them and put them in the freezer. So I have a a big array of choice (laughs) every morning. So yeah. Cool. Um,
0: Is there any sort of like a roast profile that you prefer or just uh, quality basically?
1: Yeah, um, so it's very hard to define it quantitatively or like maybe I should give some references. Like uh, I tend to like roast profiles that are light if you were talking about like somebody maybe 50 years old or older. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. what people used to drink I find a little dark, but uh, there are also some roasters that I find that went too light on the other side. So I, I like kind of a balance between the two. Uh, mm-hmm. one roaster I really enjoy in Canada is uh, Luna. Uh, the roast very close to me, what I really like. Uh, Gardely also in Italy, uh, I really enjoy the roast profile. Uh, in the US, there's like Passenger, uh, Heart that's a, the style of roast that I like. So I call it well developed, but uh, other people might mean different things when they say well developed. So, yeah, I, I don't that's like it. it too light (laughs) gotcha nothing uh nothing on the underdeveloped
0: side uh so looking at your blog you have this whole gear section that's really uh it's kind of like a a gear person's dream and uh i'm wondering how long how long did it take to accumulate the sort of setup that you have next to your fridge
1: uh about a year i would say maybe a little bit more um it's been a year and a half probably now so it all started when I moved back uh, to Montreal. So I, I, I did a postdoc in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, and when I moved back uh, to Montreal, I was really not satisfied with my coffee. And that's when I really started going into the rabbit hole. And I decided mm-hmm. to like just treat myself with like good equipment and try to understand really like, much better how I was doing it. I'm not sure what caused me to be that much dissatisfied with my coffee when I came back, but I suspect it was the the tap water. So back then, I didn't know much about uh, how tap water affects your coffee. Mm -hmm. And Washington, D.C. actually has pretty good water for coffee. And when I came back to Montreal, uh, Montreal actually doesn't have really good water. So without knowing all the details, my coffee was just much worse and I didn't know why. So it all comes down to uh, basically the amount of uh, bicarbonate that there is in the water. So there's a lot more in Montreal than D.C. And that removes some of the acids in the coffee and that makes it taste more boring. It removes some of the bright uh, acidity that uh, I tend to like. So I suspect that's what like sent me that way. I decided to put all my focus on uh, improving my coffee and that's where it all started. So... I'd say a year and a half, give or think. Cool. so it sounds like water is a big part of that. Uh, it, are you just always
0: blending your own water these days, or uh, what what does your water practice look like?
1: Yeah, um it's not an ideal solution, but for now, I ordered some microfiltered water. Uh, it's not the most environmentally friendly solution because uh, you actually use plastic. it's recyclable, but it's not and I'm not really satisfied with that. Uh, I add the uh, minerals, I add dry minerals to microfiltered water, which is basically the equivalent of distilled water. Um, I want to get a reverse osmosis system. Uh, I'm on the wait list, actually, with a company that, that's going to install that at my place. So that's going to be kind of better. Uh, you don't waste as much plastic, but you waste more water. So it's. Uh, I didn't actually find a great solution to really control your water, not yet, at least. Gotcha, cool. Well, um, so I also noticed
0: on your website, you have a whole thing about siphons and uh, by coffee people's standards these days, this is almost esoteric, but like I used to be a, a siphon nut. I'd wake up in the morning and make myself one before work. And they were good as far as like, as far as coffee people go, you know, like, and every now and then I'd get one of those bad, uh, clothy sort of like woody, disgusting cups. And eventually I just like I lost interest or like the butane would run out and it's like well no siphon today mm-hmm. um what what re-inspired uh your use of siphon
1: yeah so it's a really cool device I actually really like the look and uh, like the fact it it's based on some physics to brew it I, I just I, I kind of like it Um, I didn't find like a systematic uh, obvious improvement over pour overs. So that's why I went back eventually to pour overs. But I I think you can make pretty good coffee with it. It's a little finicky. But um, yeah, so basically I ordered the uh, beam heater, which is like this big infrared light that goes below it instead of having butane. So it's kind of expensive, but then you don't need to mess around with butane. Mm -hmm. And I... Mostly used it to experiment. Uh, I used to try to grind as fine as I could and try to get some good coffee this way, like Turkish style. It's actually very hard to uh, brew a good filter coffee with, with really, really fine grinds. It's possible. But uh, what I found was that some roast profiles tended to work well with that it's very different from a normal pour over which you would grind a a lot coarser um but you can really get a thick really interesting beverage from it but the fact that uh, you cannot know in advance whether it's going to be great or not uh makes it a little annoying so every time i would open a new bag of coffee i wouldn't know if it's it was going to come out good or not with this method so that that's basically what push me back to just go simpler and use a pour over but I still have all the setup and I I, I do plan to use it again sometime I I really enjoy the the process it's a bit longer uh, more stuff to clean up after it's mostly that part that's uh, like uh, less practical I would say
0: Gotcha. and so you were it seems like you were getting extractions in like the 24 plus range
1: Uh, not really Uh, the highest I've been is about 24 Three and a half I would say. Uh, so for those who are not familiar the, like extraction yield is basically the fraction of the dry coffee which you took out in your cup and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people use that because it's a good indicator of whether uh, a, a couple different things, whether your grinder is really uh, performing well and whether you extracted uniformly across the bed of coffee. So if you if your method is not really on point, you could extract just like along some channels and uh, you, you have small regions that are super overextracted in the coffee and other regions that are very under extracted. And the average of, of all of these things is a lower extraction yield overall. Uh, so I, I find it really useful, the extraction yield, to understand in which direction I'm moving. Uh, for example, if I change something, is it helping Uh, the evenness, or is it hurting? Uh, However, uh, it depends a lot on uh, varieties of coffee that you drink, uh, on roast profiles, and on your grinder, obviously. So those are things that I explored a lot in my book. So I'm not sure whether this is only true of my grinder or not, but when I change from a Kenyan SL28, for example, to a South American Catwai, Uh, I can go from 23% all the way down to like 20.5% just by Mm -hmm. changing the variety of coffee. So there's a huge shift around. And I suspect this effect might be weaker with different grinders. So the grinder I have is a bit weird because it produces a very small amount of fines. Uh, Fines are like the very, very fine powder of coffee. And I have a suspicion that removing all the fines like that might uh, make the differences between varieties more obvious, between the varieties of coffee. But all of this to say I drink maybe uh, between 21 and 23% extraction yield. Uh, Scott is one of the only people I know who's drinking 24 plus percent. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually used the conical Grinder to do this, a niche zero. I haven't tried it so I I can't say really but uh, I I can easily do 25% or more with my grinder but I don't enjoy what it tastes like so I can go fine enough to do that but there's also there's a big shift in the profile of taste as you grind finer or coarser so rather than try to maximize extraction I I choose a grind size that I think tastes the best I think what happens when I go to higher extractions might be that I do extract more, but I also have some channeling that causes some harsh taste that I dislike, and I have a very small tolerance for that. So I I go coarse enough so that I don't have any defect in the taste, and I really enjoy it this way. Gotcha. So it sounds like, I mean,
0: I feel like in terms of the evolution of barista mindset, there's like numbers don't mean anything. And then there's like, yeah. you know, percentages mean something. And now it sounds like you're like, you know, this is a, a useful tool to some extent, but take it with a grain of salt. So it's
1: interesting to yeah see that third evolution. <laughs> I, I think it's a very powerful tool, but it's not, you, you can't just blindly look at the number and, uh, and just use that for, for taste, especially if you compare, with someone in a different city, with a different grinder, et cetera. So I really, I don't pay that much attention to the numbers that people quote, for example, on Instagram. It's kind of maybe like, I take it with a big grain of salt, like it could be two or more percent higher or lower uh, at the point where I would enjoy it if I did the same with my grinder and my water. Who knows? It's a, it's not even clear how the water affects uh, extraction. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things I'm exploring, but I'm really far from being done exploring the what water composition does to extraction. Yeah. Um, your, your particle size distribution
0: app seems like a crazy, uh, improvement in the world of coffee. And I'm curious, how often do you use this yourself in your day-to-day coffee brewing? And, uh, Has this impacted your understanding of uh, particle distribution?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So it it really did impact my understanding. Like there's nothing like coding something or playing with data to really understand something better. Um, It's actually, it can be a bit complicated to understand all the subtleties of how to analyze and even display a distribution of grind size. Uh, it's it, it belongs to a class of actually statistics and it, it like if you make a figure with the distribution of grind size, uh, doing this properly uh, requires actually quite a bit of uh, technical knowledge. And at first, when I f- uh, started like coding that, I I didn't expect it to be that subtle, but it actually is quite subtle. Um, So it it really helped me understand all of the details of this. For example, when I look at a laser diffraction uh, distribution, which is what is mostly used in the industry, now I understand much better what they're actually doing uh, compared to before. Uh, I don't tend to measure my uh, grinder distribution very often because it's a lot of work. So it can be tempting uh, to use the app that I wrote and just throw a bunch of grounds uh, on the table and take a quick picture. But you're not going to get great results if you're not careful. So it's really a matter of having your particles well spread on a flat surface and being really careful to use a reference object, for example, a coin or a ruler uh, next to the ground coffee to get your pixel size right. Uh, it's actually quite uh, an OCD job to do this correctly. It's uh, really not easy. So when I want to do it very carefully, it takes me maybe it, it used to take me about an hour to get a very good distribution, because I would take uh, at least ten images, ten different photos, and every time you need to make sure that your particles of coffee are not clumping, otherwise it's going to throw off the imaging analysis, and. There are some uh, software tricks that you can use to figure out that those two particles are different even if they are close to one another. But uh, it it has its limits. If you have a big bunch of coffee on the table, uh, even with the human eye, you couldn't tell which one is which if you have too many of them packed together. So it requires a good amount of work to do this properly. Uh, I recently figured out Thanks to a friend who uh, suggested this to me, uh, Francisco Cuigiano. So he's a a coffee nerd on Instagram like me, and Mm he suggested to use a scanner, and that was actually a brilliant idea. And if you just use a a regular scanner uh, and just spread coffee on it, it makes everything much easier because you always have the exact same size of image. So you don't need a reference object anymore. You always have a good lighting in the picture, uh, no shadows. It fixes a lot of problems and it makes it easier. Uh, You still need to split all the particles carefully. So I really only do this when I experiment and I try to understand something about my grinder. For example, What's the effect of grinding my coffee straight from the freezer, for example? So a lot of people have talked Mm -hmm. about this on the web. Uh, So when I'm asking myself a question like that, I'm going to take a distribution. Or if I replace my burrs and want to check that I replaced them correctly, that I didn't lose my alignment, that's one moment where I would do this. But I definitely don't do this like every couple of days. It's just too much work. Gotcha. So it's not a perfect solution. It's not like a, a silver bullet. But I mean, it's it's saving uh, users thousands of dollars, right? Like how much is a, an equivalent right. tool price wise? Yeah, it's. I mean, a la- laser diffraction machine is just crazy. It's. Uh, I think it's in the hundreds of thousands. I'm not entirely Ooh. sure, actually. It's it's like lab materials, so it's just not something you can afford as a home barista. There's always the option of sifting, like, uh, for example, Croove makes some uh, sifting devices. I think they're, they're more useful to like craft some weird coffee recipes, like for barista competitions or something. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't think it would be easy to get a really good precision, like weighing uh, the amount of coffee in different compartments. And it's a bit impractical because you can have as much as, uh, as many as 12 seeds. Uh, but you would need to switch them. You can only use two at a time. So you would need to switch them around, shake it, okay. and switch them around again. So getting a lot of data on a one sample of coffee would be really hard. And then you have coffee sticking on the sides of the sieve. So you have like to be really careful. So it, it's much more straightforward with imaging. And you can also do some interesting stuff, like look at the shape of the particles with imaging which is something I started doing. So it's really that it's not a perfect solution. It requires a lot of work. You need to be uh, really careful if you wanna get good results with it, but it's at least attainable. At least you can hope to get a particle distribution and get a better handle on your grinder. Gotcha. And uh,
0: out of curiosity, you mentioned a a specific branch of statistics that you need to use. What, What branch is that?
1: Yeah, so it's called probability densities. So basically, I'm I'm gonna try to explain this in simple terms. I'm not sure I'm gonna succeed. <laughs> I haven't thought about this uh, enough, maybe. Uh, so if you want, imagine you want to display uh, how many uh, coffee particles you get uh, for each size of particle. Uh, one way to do it would be to sift the coffee, like sieve the coffee, I mean. And then you, you could say, uh, okay, I have uh, five grams that it is smaller than uh, half a millimeter, for example. And I could have 10 grams larger than five millimeters. So you have kind of two buckets, like mm-hmm. one is uh, smaller than five millimeters. The other one, uh, half a millimeter, I and mean. the other bucket is larger than that. And then you, you give an amount in each bucket. Uh, and each bucket represents a range of size of particles. So this is called a histogram. So you actually have different ranges and you see how many particles you find in each range. But you can do it in a way where you have like a, a smooth curve instead of a, a, a series of buckets with uh, one measurement in, in each of them. So doing that is actually uh, a lot more complicated. So. It's like if your bucket became very, very, very small and you would need to say how many particles you had at exactly every size. And doing this is hard because if you just actually took tiny buckets, you would have many buckets where no particles of this exact size uh, fell there. So you would have something that looks like uh, maybe um, a brush, just straight lines that wouldn't look like much. So you need to use some advanced mathematical tools to transform that into a really smooth curve. And that's uh, like, when you see some laser distribution, particle, uh, particle size distributions, they use smooth curves, but I'm actually suspicious that they are not really using like the proper statistics when they make this, but I'm not entirely sure actually. Uh, Maybe I could say what, why this is interesting? Why particle size distributions are interesting? Oh yeah, it, sure, it's yeah. obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's it's obvious for the, uber coffee geeks, but maybe, uh, people yeah, yeah. who just casually brew coffee might be like, why do you care? <laughs> so basically, um, it it has a big effect on how your coffee can taste. So if you have a grinder like a, the the most extreme example would be a blade grinder. Uh, like a kitchen blade grinder, uh, this is going to generate a very wide range of particle sizes. So you're going to get a lot of coffee dust and a lot of big coffee chunks. And when you make a pour over with this, for example, it's going to taste very different from what you would get with a burr grinder, which generates a much more uniform grind size. And the result is going to be, well, there it definitely depends on taste but the result is going to be cleaner uh, typically with a a more uniform grind size so one thing i've been trying to achieve is get the most uniform grind size and see what happens with the taste and so far uh, every time i've moved to a more uniform grind size i really enjoyed the results more it also allows you to extract more of the coffee without getting the harsh tasting components so if you get a bag of coffee and it says, oh, this tastes like a persimmon and melon, and then you grind it with a grinder that generates a very wide range of particle sizes, it might just taste like a generic coffee, just regular coffee, and you might be like, well, why do they say like persimmon and stuff like that? It really doesn't taste like that. And the reason is that you are actually uh, over extracting some particles and under extracting others and you get you kind of blur out the characteristics which are uh, unique to a coffee origin and then you get some of the more uh generic coffee taste whereas if you have a very very uniform grind size then you can play a bit more with your taste profile and really get to reach what is unique about that coffee and it becomes much easier to find the actual tasting notes that are written in their roaster bag gotcha
0: yeah I, I guess i'm used to uh sort of assuming that uh we're just gonna leave the layperson behind but uh, that's the good of you to give the rundown <laughs> of psd uh yeah in your description of the the sort of smoothing of the histogram it made me think of like foyer transforms is there ever an application for that in
1: coffee um not that I can think of, there might be actually, uh, actually, when I measured some uh, coffee paper filters with a microscope, there might have been some use to Fourier transforms there. So basically what Fourier transform does is you look at, and it's very often used in imaging. And what it can tell you is a, kind of a decomposition of an image. And it tells you uh, what if if you were to decompose your image into a series of waves of different sizes, imagine wavy patterns, you could actually choose uh, a clever combination of different waves of all sizes to actually reconstruct exactly the image you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And the Fourier transform would tell you how many of each types of waves you needed. It's kind of a list of ingredients to reconstruct your image. So it can be very useful in image analysis because it can tell you, oh, you have structures in your image that are this large and you have a lot of structures in, in your image that are very small, but you have no structure in your image that are between this and this size. So a Fourier transform would tell you something like that. So with coffee filters, that could, one of this application would be to determine how large the pores are because you're gonna have a lot of structures in the image uh, with a size comparable to the pores. However, I tend to dislike Fourier transforms because they introduce a lot of noise in the data. So anytime you you could introduce one bad pixel in there, or maybe there's a piece of dust on your, on your image and just that bad pixel could really mess up everything in your analy- uh, analysis. So there are, other ways that are a bit more complicated than Fourier transforms to do things, but they they typically allow you to get a more precise results basically. So I wouldn't actually use Fourier transforms for particle size distributions. Gotcha. Maybe there's a way to use them, but I'm just not aware of uh, how I could use them in that context.
0: I think I just wanted to say a mathy thing to let you know that I knew what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this, uh, I think, is a good segue into your book, Physics of Filter Coffee, which you're working on. And uh, so I I have this memory of basically talking to uh, my sister-in-law's, at the time, partner who was a physics major. And I was like, oh, cool, you can probably provide me with some insight for coffee. And I was like trying to figure out even what to ask, and they had no sense of. How to approach coffee despite their physics tool set and so I'm curious A if you can talk about your book a little bit and B uh, just sort of what are the bare minimum physics skills that somebody would need to actually apply them to coffee?
1: Yeah sure um, so hopefully uh, none so I'm hoping that someone that who is just interested in coffee Uh, could open the book and understand everything from A to Z. It would require a bit of work, but I'm hoping that everything is explained clearly enough. Um, There's like a large appendix in the book with some technical details that are not meant for the layperson, but most of the book is just really, I'm really trying to simplify every concept so that uh, you don't actually need prior knowledge of physics. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to succeed in making this clear enough for everyone to understand it, but at least I tried. Um, Asking the right question is actually really the most difficult part, and you got that right. Uh, Even I, with my background in physics, when I first started, I didn't know what question to ask. Like I had all of the tool sets to understand what is going on if I had the right uh, mental image of what's going on. So I didn't know where does the water pass exactly? Does it all go straight down through the coffee? Does it move around the coffee? I had no way of knowing that without actual data, actual measurements. But what I could do is if it passes straight down through the coffee, then I could write down some equations and start to uh, look at exactly how fast it goes, depending on the different things. Um, so it really took me a lot of time to figure out what is going on when you do just a pour over, which is simpler than espresso already. But um, just knowing what questions to ask took me a while. And this happens very often. Actually, when you study physics, it's easy to, Uh, get trapped into thinking that everything can be described easily with physics because you spend years and years learning about simple systems. For example, a mass and a spring or a pendulum or even a star. uh, For Some aspects of a star are actually very simple. And so when you apply physics to always the simple things, Uh, you might end up thinking that, oh, everything is simple and I can easily describe anything with equations and so on. But actually, when you try to do this with real life situations, it can get very hard, very fast in surprising ways. And then you realize, oh, all these years I spent learning about physics, all these problems I, I solved were actually chosen carefully for their simplicity. And you might not have realized that before. So, Even with with many different things, it's like cooking. If you start asking precise questions about the chemistry or physics of cooking bread, it can get really complicated really fast. And that's true of many things which you would think are simple. Uh, So coffee is, is a lot like that. So for a while, I was just, it was just a black box and I really wasn't sure of what was going on in it. And now I think I have some, good grasp of the big picture of what is happening when you group over and the book is my attempt to make that accessible to everyone. And it's not actually only by experimentation that I figured all of these things, it's in big part also from researching the scientific literature on uh, how water uh, goes through uh, soil. For example, there's a lot of research about uh, it's called percolation much like coffee so how water uh, goes through the soil and reaches uh, underground water for example Um, so there's a lot of study about that but it's never really generalized or explained or applied in the concept in the context of coffee it's all very technical and remains in inside geophysics So someone needed to just parse the literature and just summarize it in the context of coffee. So that's in big part uh, what I did for the book. And Similarly, for even how you pour your water uh, onto your pour-over with your kettle. Uh, So for example, imagine you want to uh, have as much agitation of the coffee uh, that you can get. It's actually not that simple to get as much agitation as you can. It's not as simple as saying, oh, pour from very high and it's going to agitate more. It's not true. If you pour from very, very high, you're going to splatter water everywhere, but you're not going to agitate the coffee that is below the water that much. So just researching that aspect brought me into some weird areas of science like nuclear reactors that, are, that use like plunging jets of water inside big pools of still water. And they actually carried out, carried out all of the detailed calculations, but nowhere else I could find relevant information about that. So it, this book brought me to some very, very weird places, but uh, it, it really uh, allowed me to understand better what's going on.
0: Interesting, cool. So a lot of it sounds like it was just uh, collating research. And then in terms of your experimentation, can you run us through any experiments that you did to come to new insights?
1: Yeah, a lot of them were uh, analyzing particle size distributions of uh, grinders. So comparing what happens if you uh, grind at different temperatures, if you grind different beans, uh, different roast styles. So that's one big part of it. Another big branch is uh, understanding the extraction. Um, So how much uh, compounds you extract from coffee, depending on the origin of the bean, depending on how much water you use, uh, depending on how much you agitate the coffee, uh, depending on how you pour with your kettle. So to do this part, I actually logged every coffee I made for the past about a year and a half, I would say. And wow. that's around a thousand coffees. So I have mm-hmm. like this Excel spreadsheet with like a thousand entries with like what ratio I use, what origin is this, what extraction yield I got, how much water I use. It, it sounds like a lot, but actually every time I make a coffee, I just note down these informations in uh, Apple Notes. So with my cell phone, this way I don't have to like bring out my laptop every time I brew And then later I take all of this data and enter it in a big spreadsheet. And that allowed me to do some of the um, analysis that I I show in the book. So for example, uh, Kenyans, uh, everyone kind of knows that Kenyans extract more, but uh, I had never seen actual hard data to show this. And now uh, I show it in the book that indeed Kenyans tend to extract a lot more. And I suspect this is because there's more stuff in the beans, basically. Mm. So they they just contain more material to be extracted. And one really nice thing that I saw is that if you uh, look at how much extraction you get for different coffee beans as a function of their altitude where they were grown, the higher grown coffees really extract more stuff. There's a really strong correlation there. And one possible mechanism to understand this might be that uh, as, the, as the coffee ex- experiences harsher conditions, it might be concentrating more nutrients and sugars in, in the seed to give the seed a better chance of uh, surviving. That's my understanding of it, but I'm not, I'm really not that deep into understanding uh, coffee growing or green coffee. Uh, but I did see some mention of that in uh, one book I read. Uh, I think it was The Science of Quality by um, Andreas Ely. It's like a big book about uh, coffee. And I remember reading that mention that uh, at higher altitudes, at least the sugars were, tended to be more concentrated in the bean. So I would think that that might be an explanation why uh, the coffee grown at higher altitudes seem to extract more stuff. Uh, There's a a different uh, possible explanation to that, uh, which might be um, if you have a completely different set of chemicals in a Kenyan coffee uh, that, that what you get in a South American coffee, for example, it could throw off the calibration of the instrument we use to measure concentration. It's called a refractometer And it tells you, uh, it uses like the refractive index of the coffee, so how much it deflects light when it passes inside uh, the coffee. And by measuring exactly how much it deflects light, it's able to tell you how concentrated it is. And that's what we use to calculate extraction yields. Uh, But this exact relation of transforming uh, the light deflection into a concentration, uh, this exact transformation depends on the chemical composition of your coffee or tea or whatever beverage you are measuring. So maybe Kenyans tend to have like a profile of chemicals that contain more of one type of acid, for example, that might lead you to think falsely that they are more concentrated. So it's possible that it's the calibration issue, but seeing this strong correlation between growing altitude and extraction yield tends to make me think it might actually be real. There might be more stuff in the Kenyan coffees, for example, because there, I wouldn't, um, there wouldn't be an obvious explanation as to why the higher grown coffees would have this uh, chemical profile that tends to overestimate the concentration. Whereas you have a clear mechanism for the other hypothesis, uh, which is that there's actually more stuff in the coffee bean. I feel like the people that I've associated with sort of have
0: the intuition that it's the more stuff, but it's interesting that you're you're taking a little bit more of a analytical approach. Uh, hearing about this, this spreadsheet, uh, I'm sort of curious. So like, you know, if you have a thousand entries, what are all the data points like, you know, uh, obviously like the coffee, the roast date, or it's like age, uh, dose, uh, water weight, uh, like water temperature, slurry temperature, are you getting
1: that deep or like what are the other points? Um, I enter what kettle temperature I use. Uh, that's very different from the slurry temperature. So when you pour in in a, a V60, for example, whether it's a ceramic V60 or a plastic V60, you might end up with a very different temperature inside the slurry. So in the mix of coffee and water. Um, I do not uh, write that down for every coffee because it's actually quite hard to measure the slurry temperature uh, Mm -hmm. accurately without uh, affecting your uh, brew. So you can place a thermopen, for example, in it, but it causes a big channel. So water is going to pass right through that place where you put the thermopen. So it tends to generate bad coffee, and I don't want to drink bad coffee every day (laughs) just (laughs) for the sake of I'm ready to put uh, a lot of efforts but not to drink that coffee for a year (laughs) Mm -hmm. so um, what I did is I noted down the kettle temperature and I only uh, I only noted down the slurry temperature when I was actually doing experiments and for that I used um, it's called a k-type thermal probe if I'm correct it's like a small wire with a bed at the at the end of it and then I put that uh, just above the bed of coffee, but I have to place it really, um, I have to be careful when I place it so that it doesn't touch the coffee and everything. So it's, it takes a couple of minutes to set it up uh, properly. But there are some devices that actually read by Bluetooth the temperature live during your brew. So you can yeah. actually see the slurry temperature moving around as you pour and stop pouring. So that's another example of some data I show in the book. Um, but for the sake of the spreadsheet, I just entered the kettle temperature. But other columns I enter is are like the coffee varietal, uh, the altitude where it was grown, the roaster, how much water I used, uh, the brew time, obviously that's an interesting one. Uh, brew time is surprisingly harder to get uh, consistently always the same than it is to get the same concentration every time. So, um. By measuring everything and uh, making sure I always brew the same way, I'm able to, uh, when I'm concentrated, reach the same con- concentration from one pour over to the next. And that's only because I, I really measure everything. Like I I I have a, how do you say in English? I have a, a point of reference for how high I pour with the kettle, for example, so that uh, on a different day, I, I'm not pouring twice as high. Uh, and stuff like that so I have I'm not trusting basically my instincts and I'm just measuring everything and by doing that I'm able to get like always the same concentration if I use the same coffee but I'm very rarely able to get exactly the same brew time that's Mm -hmm. even harder so I don't hear that very often among the in the coffee community so a lot of people talk about how hard it is to get the concentration always the same it is hard, but I find it even harder to get the glutine time always the same. And that's because it's very sensitive on how fast you pour and when exactly you start pouring and when you stop pouring. Uh, the reason for that is that if, if you have more water in your, um, in your dripper, it's gonna pour faster. So mm-hmm. the, the drip rate is faster if you have more water. Uh, basically, the, the principle is that the the weight of water in the dripper is what pushes the water through the coffee bed. So if you have a lot, of, at any moment where you have a lot of water, the drip rate is going to be fast. And when you have almost no water in there, the drip rate is always going to be slower. That doesn't necessarily mean your filter clogged. So that's something that happens when your filter clogs, the, the drip rate stops. But it's always gonna be, even if your filter doesn't clog, it's always gonna be slower at dripping when there's less water in your dripper. So because of that, if you pour your water super slow and always maintain a very low level of water in your dripper, your brew time is gonna be very long because you're always using a small amount of weight to push your water through the coffee bed. And if you pour the same amount of water, but just pour it all at once, uh, it's gonna drip faster, and you're gonna get a much shorter brew time. So because of this, exactly how you show you choose to pour, and exactly how fast you pour, is gonna affect your brew time. So this is uh, this is why I think it's much harder to get the brew time always the same. But I still write it down because uh, you can still see some pretty interesting stuff, uh, even if uh, my brew times are like they they might change by about 10 seconds from one brew to the next if I brew with the same coffee. Uh, But uh, by looking at all the coffees I I ever brewed in the past year and a half, uh, there was a clear trend where Ethiopian coffees had longer brew times uh, Mm -hmm. for the same grind size. So we often hear about Ethiopians clogging more easily or generating longer brews, but you can actually see it very clearly if you take an average of a lot of brews
0: Eat. Uh in terms of like the the rate at which you add water to the kettle are you thinking of it in terms of like grams per second or uh is that not like on the spreadsheet is that just in your head or like how detailed are you thinking about this rate
1: Yeah it's uh it's hard to be extremely precise when doing that it requires a very steady hand um I, I used to use a Hario Kettle, which has quite a, it has a, a narrow gooseneck by many standards, but it's still a bit too thick to be able to pour very at a very precise flow rate. So now I use one that has an even narrower gooseneck. It's called uh, EKG by, um, by Fellow. It's like, a, I think it's called like Stag EKG, something like that. It's a very fancy kettle, and it has like a very narrow booseneck and also a counterweight in the handle. That's a part I really enjoy. So it's much easier to pour steadily. And on top of that, I have a a scale. So I always brew with a scale. I'm sure nobody's surprised (laughs) after this conversation. Um, And there are some models of scales that tell you how fast you're pouring. So I can actually see my pour rate. Uh, as I brew and I try to stay around five grams per second. It tells me in grams per second. And I found by trial and error that five grams per second uh, seemed to be the the sweet spot in terms of how much it agitates the coffee bed. At least with my equipment, might be different for different equipments. Um, But yeah, I use that. And uh, I have a friend who wrote an app, a Bluetooth app that connects to the scale and that app also tells me the, the flow rate. So now I don't have to look down on the scale. Uh, that's something I didn't mention. Uh, I also started measuring the, it, it's like a profile of your brew as I brew. So I have like this brew stand, uh, which I put on a big scale and I put the dripper on top of the stand and the, the scale measures uh, the amount of water I poured in the dripper basically. And then uh, inside the stand, I have a tiny scale. It's like the akaya Lunar's that you probably know. And then I have the, my beverage vessel on top of that small scale. And the, the scale measures how much output I get. So as I see the amount of output coffee changes, I can deduce how fast the coffee drips out of the dripper. And so both scales are connected to uh, an iPad, uh, not an iPad, a small Android tablet. And that tablet runs a code that my friend wrote. And uh, it actually reads uh, a couple times a second the the number on both scales. And then it exports it as a CSV file, so a, a set of values. It's just a file with all your data. And it goes on my Dropbox, basically. And then later on I I run some codes that I wrote that parse this data and make figures with the, Mm -hmm. with my, with my brews basically. So if I have a brew that tasted weird and I don't know why I can go back to the profile of that brew and be like, Oh, uh, what happened? Did I pour faster or something like that? So it's a lot like the decent espresso machine, you know, it has like this iPad on top of it and it shows curves live. Mm -hmm. It's, basically like that except i don't look at the curves live Uh, i just have them after uh, just just if i want to go back to them or it also allows me to do some science with it Uh, it's a it's harder surprisingly to interpret like the data compared to espresso because it's uh how can i say that it's um the resistance of the coffee bed is a lot harder to calculate uh, with pour over coffee compared to espresso mm. machines. So espresso machines give you a nice, even pressure, at least in principle, when it works well. It gives you a nice, even pressure across the coffee bed, and it's always the same pressure if you want it to be. Uh, and that makes it easier to calculate the, how much resistance there is in the coffee bed. So how much it prevents the water from flowing, basically. Uh, if you do that with a pour over, you have to always calculate how much uh, how much water there is in the dripper and then calculate the weight of this water and how much pressure that applies uh, on the coffee bed. And then it's, it's a lot more steps to do this correctly, basically. And with the V60, I realized very late, but actually with the help of this data, that some water goes around the coffee. So if you just use some equations and some maths to try and calculate the resistance of the coffee bed, you kind of have to assume that all water passes through the coffee. Uh, Otherwise, it's very hard to know exactly how much water went around the coffee. And what I observed is that if you brew in a V60, sometimes water is going to go around and then stop going around for a while and then go around again for a couple of seconds and then stop going around. And then, so if you try to calculate how much resistance your coffee bed has, your calculation is going to be off every time there's water going around the coffee bed because it mm. throws off all of your assumptions that you used to make this calculation. So at least it, it allowed me to realize this was a real effect. So a lot of the time I hear people say, don't pour on the sides of the filter because water is going to go around the coffee. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, You're not going to prevent this by pouring at the center. But it seems to be true that some water sometimes goes around the coffee bed. But pouring on the center is just not a solution to fix it. And I think the only solution we'll get is a flat-bottom dripper. So I, oh yeah, I, I, I've been a fan of V60s for a very long time. Almost all of these thousand brews I did were with a V60. And I ended up realizing that there's probably no way around getting this problem with uh, conical drippers. Um, so to get a bit technical, you have a choice to make when you design a conical dripper. And either you choose to make the walls very smooth so that the filter sticks to the side, like the Chemex, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you do do this, you're going to have a potential issue, which is that you're only using a very small region of the coffee filter, of the paper filter, and you have a very Mm -hmm. large amount of coffee on top of that. So imagine in a Chemex, imagine there's no spout uh, because the spout is another region where the water can flow. But imagine a dripper that is just perfectly smooth, except for a small hole at the bottom. Uh, You have maybe 20 grams of coffee in there. And all that coffee with the water is going to try to pass through a tiny circle of paper. And that's going to clog your paper extremely fast. So all of the powder, all of the coffee powder is going to get stuck in that super small surface of paper and it's going to clog super fast. So I was actually able to see that happening with a uh, custom dripper that a friend, uh, Dan Eels, printed for me with a 3D printer. So he basically sent me a V60 without the ridges inside. So Mm -hmm. instead of having ridges, it has very smooth walls. And you can put a paper filter in there for water. It flows very easily. You just add a pinch of coffee and it clogs with a pinch of coffee. So at first, this completely puzzled me. I was like, what is going on here? And the reason is that a pinch is enough to clog that tiny area of the coffee filter, which you're actually using. So by adding ridges outside the filters, uh, the Hario dripper has a lot more surface of coffee paper a filter uh, paper filter basically so water can go through all of this filter and that means you have a huge area of filter that is able to capture a lot more fines before it clogs but that also means that a lot of water is actually going around your coffee bed because of that reason so unless I, I'm lacking some imagination or something, I think the only way around this is to have a, a flat bottom dripper where you have a larger area of uh, paper filter.
0: Interesting. Um, I've always sort of favored the V62 and part of that is just sort of putting a lot of stock in what Scott Rayo says. Um, so are you, <laughs> which brewer are you using instead? Are you using
1: like a Wave or? Um, um so yeah, Scott has actually started trying flat bottoms now. Uh I don't think there's a perfect dripper out there uh mm-hmm. at the moment. So most of the flat bottom drippers, at least all those that I tried, have really big issues with flow rate. It's very hard to get enough uh enough water flowing through. And um most yeah, design flaws, sadly. Um Uh, One very important thing uh, when you do a dripper, when you build a dripper is that the paper filter must not stick to the bottom of the dripper. Uh, Imagine the Calita wave. It has these three tiny holes at the bottom. If you just pour water in the Calita without a paper filter or without coffee, it's gonna flow really fast. You're not gonna have any flow issues. But if you put a, a paper filter in there, Uh, If the paper sticks to the bottom of the coffee, uh, sorry, if it sticks to the bottom of the dripper uh, and you only get uh, flow through the filter across the three tiny holes, then it's going to be super slow. But if you just lift the paper filter above these holes, then it's going to flow quite fast. So the reason for this is a bit technical. Uh, I'm not sure I could simplify it uh, right now. Basically. Let me try to, so if you, if you have a paper filter, basically what you have is a series of many, many small holes, the pores through the paper filter basically. So if you, uh, if you block part of the filter, you're actually blocking many of these pores and you're slowing down the flow of water. If you don't have a paper filter, the laws are very different for how fast the water flows because how large the, the holes are at the bottom of the dripper are gonna be more important than how many holes you, you have. Uh, the reason is that if you have a large hole, water is gonna flow much faster through the hole. It's not just about how many holes you get. Each hole is gonna allow for a lot more flow if it's not obstructed by a filter. If you add a paper filter, you don't have this benefit at any point, because the paper filter has a fixed size of pores, mm-hmm. even if your dripper hole was huge, you, it's still just a large number of tiny holes it 's not larger holes, so if you have enough if you have holes at the bottom of the dripper which are large enough for a decent flow, but add a filter on top of that. if the filter sticks to the bottom and water can only go through the filter. Um, where these holes are then the flow is going to be super slow and that's very often an issue with the kalita the filter can kind of crumble at the bottom and block the holes and so i think that's uh, one of the problems uh but the dripper i use mostly is not the kalita because i also dislike the fact it's made of uh, metal so it's a very bad thermal insulator so your slurry temperature is going to be very low and I tend to enjoy a stereo temperature of at least uh, 190 Fahrenheit. I think that's 90 Celsius. And it's very hard to get above that unless you have a really, really good uh, insulator. So the best one I found so far was the Stag uh, by Fellow, the same uh, company that made the kettle I use. Mm. So it's a like a double wall insulator. Uh, it's, it's a double wall with a vacuum uh, between the two walls. So it's a really good thermal insulator. It's actually better than the plastic V60 at that. Uh, but it can also sometimes have issues with flow, I found out. So it has more holes than the Carita. So that's a step in the right direction. It has 10 holes at the bottom and some ridges to prevent the filter from clogging the holes. But it still clogs the holes sometimes. So Scott had this idea of putting a tea strainer mesh at the bottom so so as to lift, lift the filter above the coffee holes and that works very well and I was really happy with that solution for a while but I realized only recently that you need to clean the strainer very regularly even if it looks clean and you rinsed it some oils are gradually building up on the meshes and at some point you end up with five minute brews or, or even five and a half minute brews and mm-hmm. you don't have enough flow and you wash it really thoroughly in soap and that's really annoying because it's easy to get some soap in your in your coffee and then it doesn't taste good so i i like solutions that only require cleaning with soap once in in a very long time so it's i'm not entirely satisfied with my setup so far but it's it's pretty close to to being like really great Uh, For example, if I take the same coffee and brew it in a V60 or in a flat bottom, I tend to get about 1% extraction yield higher. That's pretty big. So that's with the same grind size, the same everything. And I'm almost convinced that the reason for this is water going around the coffee bed in the V60. And basically, it's not all water that goes around the coffee bed, but it's a big chunk of it. So... I think what happens is that you have the top of the V60 that of the coffee in the V60 that is well extracted, but the bottom is not very well extracted. I think the bottom is under extracted and that's where the extra 1% might uh, come from. And that, that would also explain why Scott is getting much, much higher extractions with the descent, which causes a lot more agitation in the v 60 And I think that's able to reach the bottom layers a bit more efficiently, you know. He's also able to get more extraction in a flat bottom. uh, So there might be more to it, but um, I don't have a decent, so I can't uh, really know Mm -hmm. for sure. But I do expect the difference between manual pours and a decent uh, pour over. I expect the difference to be uh, more important for a conical dripper because of that underextracted bottom, then you would get for a flat bottom. I expect the extraction yields to be closer to one another uh, between manual pours and descent, if you use a flat bottom. Gotcha, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at about an hour here. I just have
0: a few more questions for you. Do you have time? Mm-hmm. Like, I have like three questions. Sure. Um, cool, yeah. so uh, you mentioned Scott, like Scott Ray has come up a bunch in this conversation, and uh, mm-hmm. he was the first first guest on this podcast. Um, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about his influence on you, and if there are any other influences in coffee like him for you.
1: Sure. So when I first started to go really deep into this rabbit hole, the first thing I did is try to find some information on the physics of coffee online. And as it turns out, that was very hard. So I was mm-hmm. surprised at this kind of vacuum in the quantitative physics about coffee. And uh, the first thing I found was uh, Scott's books, actually, and I m- immediately ordered them and started reading them. And what I found there was that he is very pragmatic. So he uses uh, a very scientific approach to brewing, uh, but he doesn't have the, the like a degree in physics or something like that. He doesn't use equations to drive uh, all of this search, but he uses basically the scientific method to determine what works best or not uh, in practice. So that was a very big, uh, a very good starting point for me. And uh, so I wrote a question to him, I think about water the first time I emailed him and then he started going back and forth and he really helped me with uh, understanding everything about uh, coffee. So I often had these intuitions based on physics, uh, that, that were driven by wrong assumptions. And he really helped in these situations because he has a, a really big amount of experience, which I do not have. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've been brewing like pour overs at home for a couple of years, but I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, so I, my experience was extremely limited. So combining his really good experience with my tools was really useful to understand uh, what's going on better. So he's been a really big influence to help me in in, in that way with his experience. And he's also helped me a lot to gather a following on Instagram, for example. Um, Another influence I've had is uh, Matt Berger. Uh, He has like Barista Hustle. So I I only noticed that website after uh, I found Scott's books. uh, But that was also a really good source of information for me. So, yeah, so basically those two have i've had a lot of long discussions with them that really really helped my understanding uh there's also dan eels uh he helps scott uh 3d printing printing stuff uh, with the litmus lab i think their company like print like shower heads so he really helped me too in a more practical side like i was for example, I would be like, oh, if we remove the ridges inside v V60, it's going to be much better. And, and so he does it, he 3D prints it, sends it to me, and it doesn't work at all. <laughs> I think every time, mo- I, mostly every time I've asked him to 3D print something, it didn't work, but I learned a lot. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's not ideal, but it's still great. <laughs> and yeah, so there's also a couple people on Instagram. I've had long conversations about Caffeine, but it's... Mostly Matt and the Scott who uh, have helped me a lot to yeah, understand these things. Cool, awesome.
0: They've been very uh, influential on me as well. Uh, I'm curious if, basically, if somebody were to throw a ton of money at you to do like a one day uh, coffee service type thing, I'm curious what that would look like. Like what type of, since you aren't, I mean, you aren't like a, a barista in the sense of like making lattes and cappuccinos for people on their way to work, I'm curious how you would present a sort of culinary coffee experience if there were mm-hmm. no, no, had... <laughs> no funds to worry about yeah. it, just all the money in the world.
1: Right. I've actually tried a, a tiny version of that with uh, some family and friends where I, I invited them all at my place and then we brewed like I think it was something like eight pour overs of very different origins which I had back like, sealed in my freezer and then I brewed each of them with them and we got Completely over caffeinated and different coffees. It was a pretty fun experience. It actually didn't cost that much. It, it's just a matter of time. It's a lot of preparation, and it takes up a lot of time. So I I don't know what I how I could do this better with more money, basically with better gear. I would say or better coffee maybe. Um. No, I don't. I I don't know what else I could uh, use that for. But um. Yeah, basically I've, the, the services I've offered sometimes were more about like helping people with their water composition, but mm-hmm. it's mostly very technical. Like, I think it was a barista at Intelligentsia who was trying to find his own uh, brew water for competition, something like that. It's mostly competition pe- baristas who ask me these detailed questions uh but my knowledge is very deep in some aspects and very narrow in others and sometimes the transition can be quite sharp like if someone asks me how to pull an espresso shot i i just don't know much (laughs) i pulled like one shot in my life i i plan i plan to get an espresso machine a good one at some point but uh like probably the the decent obviously but um it's uh, I, I haven't gotten into that particular rabbit hole yet and like milk is even worse like any milk beverage i just know nothing about that so uh yeah it's mostly water grinding pour overs uh, i really enjoy filter coffees so that's that's what i dug into mostly
0: yeah cool. a funny fact about me i've never had a cappuccino so uh Yeah. Uh, Last question I'll ask you is, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what you're researching right now in terms of astrophysics and stuff? And uh, I I sort of asked this with some curiosity because the head roaster at the coffee company I work at is deep into astrology and then you're deep into astrophysics. And uh, I'm a man of science, so uh, (laughs) I'd like to hear what you have to say about it
1: yeah sure. Uh, so none of what I research has much to do with constellations <laughs> sadly for him. <laughs> so if you were to put me in a like dark sky and ask me where which is which constellation i am not that great at this, not that I'm proud of it, but uh, most astrophysicists are really bad with constellations. <laughs> so we tend to work behind the computer, uh, write codes, analyze big data sets, but it doesn't necessarily mean we have this breadth of uh, astronomy knowledge if we just look at the stars. I'm trying to improve that because I should know better. But uh, what I work on are basically, um, so there are weird objects that are in between exoplanets and stars. So I touch a little bit on the science of stars and the science of exoplanets, but where most of my research is, is these objects that are called brown dwarfs. So they're like imagine Jupiter, which is a gas giant planet, uh, imagine it's much more massive, uh, for some complicated reasons of physics, they're not much larger, they're just denser, uh, but they look a lot like Jupiter. They have like these big clouds, uh, these big weather patterns, but they just float in the universe like stars do, they're just floating around in space. And uh, the reason why you might not have heard of this before is that it's very recent science. And these objects are so cold that you can't see them um, with normal telescopes. Uh, if you look at visible light, they are just much too faint. And you need to attach an infrared camera uh, on the back of your telescope to reveal them, uh, because this way you can see colder objects. And basically, infrared cameras are a very young technology. So we've had those at University of Montreal for a couple of decades now. But when we first got uh, an infrared camera, way before I started my PhD there, it was a military thing, military uh, stuff that they didn't use anymore. And you couldn't actually, I think you still cannot open up the the camera we have if you don't have like a itar backup checks like to make sure you're not a spy or something oh, gotcha. because it's wow. it's it's very young technology, so it's i think it's stuff they use to like detect missiles or stuff like that, so that's why the army started researching infrared uh, arrays like that, but we started using them uh, to study uh, brown dwarfs and search for exoplanets. So both the fields of brown dwarfs and exoplanets kind of exploded since the 90s uh, when these infrared detectors happened. So uh, I do mostly infrared uh, data like that. And I try to find brown dwarfs that are in this region uh, where we don't actually know how to call them because they are so small that we would call them exoplanets if we found them around the star but we have no idea how they formed. Uh, we don't know if they were uh, gas giants ejected from a planet, from a stellar system, or if they just formed directly there. And uh, p- some people would like to call them differently depending on how they formed, but we don't know how they formed, so we don't have a good name. So they're like, those very uh, light ones are a lot more like Jupiter, they're just exactly like a giant planet. Um, So we we study like the weather patterns, uh, how the clouds evolve over time, uh, what is the composition in their atmosphere. And for technical reasons, it's much more easier to study uh, these objects when they're not in orbit around the star. So they're very rare, uh, at least they're hard to find. So we only know a couple that are not around the star and that have very small masses. Uh, but studying them allows us to understand exoplanets much better because exoplanets are kind of drowning in the light of their star I, when we look at them from here because they're very far from us and they're very close to each other in the sky so if you try to look at an exoplanet you're completely blinded by the star so you need to use you need to use some very advanced technologies to actually remove the the influence of the star and just see the planet so sometimes people use this analogy that it's like looking at a very distant lighthouse and you're trying to see a firefly like right next to the lighthouse Mm. so your camera would get completely oversaturated so you need to use some clever techniques and even with the uh the technology we have now um we really cannot get extremely good Uh, measurements on the exoplanet, at least not uh, on the light that directly arrives from the exoplanet. So sometimes we can see the influence of the planet on its star, like how much gravitational pull it uh, tugs on the star, but it's extremely hard to actually detect the light that comes from the planet itself. And we can do that much more easily with a brown dwarf or a, a brown dwarf light enough to be called an exoplanet. Uh, if if they're isolated in space, if they're not in orbit around the star, then you can get really, really precise data.
0: Interesting. Very cool. Well, yeah. cool. uh, I'll have to re-listen to that and let it fully sink in. <laughs>
1: sure. Um, yeah, sorry. I went to get fast through that. <laughs> My no, computer no, has 3% batteries, so I'm trying to <laughs> survive. Oh, <laughs> good. Well, um,
0: cool. I think we can end on that. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Jonathan
1: nice thanks for having me it was a pleasure yeah
0: well i'll talk to you in the future